2: This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look at the top stories in the coming week from our Daybreak anchors all around the world. And straight ahead on the program, gearing up for a highly anticipated Federal Reserve decision, I'm Tom Busby in New York.
3: I'm Brian Curtis in Hong Kong. We check in with Bloomberg's Kathleen Hayes on the BOJ. Will they or won't they?
4: I'm Caroline Hepke in London, where we've been speaking to Nigel Farage about the decision by Coots to close his bank account. I'm Kayleigh Lyons in
5: Washington, where the Biden family is bracing for Hunter Biden to appear in a Delaware court.
6: That's all straight ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, on Bloomberg 1130 New York, Bloomberg 991 Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 1061 Boston, Bloomberg 960 San Francisco, DAB Digital Radio London, Sirius XM 119, and around the world on Bloombergradio.com and via the
2: Bloomberg Business app. Good day to you. I'm Tom Busby, and we begin today's program with the Fed's big policy meeting coming up this week, which Bloomberg Radio will be covering live. Now, joining me now to talk about what could be a pivotal decision from the central bank, Bloomberg's global economics and policy editor, Michael McKee. Well, the Federal Open Market Committee will wrap up a big two-day meeting this Wednesday with a decision on interest rates and a press conference from Chairman Jay Powell. What do you see happening? Do they pause again? Do they hike? By how much? What is Chairman Powell expected to signal for the rest of the year?
7: You know, they better move or there will be a lot of disappointed people on Wall Street. Futures markets are pricing in, uh, at this point, a 95% chance that they will raise rates, which is as good as 100% given the complexities of figuring all that out. And so uh, you can expect a rate increase, 25 basis points. Then the question becomes, what does Jay Powell tell us about the future? We do not get a new set of dot plot projections and we don't get... At new economic projections. But in general, economists think inflation will continue to fall for a little bit and unemployment will hang in around the level it is. So does that mean the Fed is done? They did tell us in June they thought they would go two more times. So is that second one still on the table? And if so, would it be in September at the next meeting or would they do another skip and go on to November. So the press conference is gonna draw a lot of interest.
2: Well, let's break down some of the data points that Chairman Powell and the other members of the Fed are gonna use to determine this decision. Uh, CPI for
7: June. The CPI numbers were very encouraging because they came in lower than anticipated, and a lot of categories did show some movement in the direction the Fed wants, including rents, uh, used cars, things that have been keeping the uh, CPI higher. So... If you believe that trend is going to continue and the Fed does believe that rents will continue to go down and used car prices, according to wholesalers, are going to continue to go down, then that could be good news. They'll be watching the services industries to see if wage pressure is driving uh, the service industry inflation higher. But so far, in the last couple months, it hasn't been. So the Fed is on track. It just gets uh, to the point where, because we've only got a percentage point to go on the CPI down to 2%, that it takes a a little uh, more than you each month to bring it down faster. We get uh, very small moves, and that's good news, but it isn't where they want to be. But the labor market, resilient, still strong. The
2: jobless rate last month falling down to 3.6% in June. That's got to be encouraging.
7: Well, that's an argument that the Fed has been uh, considering, for a couple of years now. uh, They have felt, and most economists felt, that you have to drive unemployment up because historically that's what you do to bring down demand. But demand seems to be softening and inflation seems to be coming down without unemployment rising. Last month it actually went down a tick. So is this time different? It does seem that way. Uh, We had some economists saying you had to go as high as 6%. Uh, The Fed now thinks you'll get to 4.1%, but is that even going to be the case? It's not going to matter to them. They'd be very happy to leave unemployment at 3.6% if inflation comes down, because uh, that might show this is a different uh, kind of recovery.
2: Now, this doesn't impact the Fed's thinking too much, but certainly Wall Street, and that is bank earnings have been a lot stronger than forecast. Coming off that crisis in March, everyone on Wall Street expecting the same thing, with tech earnings that are coming up.
7: Well, you got to think that maybe the same thing will happen. The tech earnings will be a little bit better than anticipated. I was at a conference last week with some uh, tech officials who said uh, the business is pretty good and that the, the worst is over for the tech industry. There has been a lot of talk that uh, we're still having trouble finding workers and therefore companies are going more into automation, which should help boost That sector. And the other thing, of course, obviously, is AI, artificial intelligence, and what that means and how fast that is expanding. Let's turn to uh, someone we haven't heard from in a
2: while, former Fed Chairman Ben Bernanke. Just last week, he said on a webinar organized by Fidelity Investments, he thinks the Fed will raise rates by another 25 basis points this week. As you mentioned, 95% of economists do. But he also said it might be the last
7: one for the year. What are your thoughts on that? Well, you'd have to parse that (laughs) and whether he means they'll do something next year. But one assumes that he means that's it, that this is the end of the tightening cycle. Then the question moves on to how long does the Fed leave rates high? Markets think by March or April, the Fed might be cutting rates, not because the economy is in recession. Uh, That narrative is starting to change, but because inflation is coming down, so uh, that pushes up real rates if that happens, and uh, they want to keep those from getting too high. So they might be cutting rates in response to a much lower inflation rate. But that's uh, months away. We'll see if uh, Ben Bernanke's prognostication is any better than anyone else's. Now, in the
2: upcoming months, there's a few things that could really impact the Fed's thinking, the markets, the general economy. and, And let's break down a few of these. Number one, labor strife. There are things going on right now. Uh, Since May 2nd, we've had this uh, writer's strike, now a sag after it, but there are a few others you're watching closely.
7: Yeah, I think the uh, thing for the Fed is that. Yes, the data have been going in the right direction, but there as is as you mentioned, a lot that could change that. And, of course, one of them is the possibility of labor action. Uh, obviously, the, the actors and writers are on strike already. Uh, the Yellow Truck Company, Yellow Trucking, is looking at a possible strike at the end of July, and that would be about 100,000 workers. Uh, UPS and the Teamsters are negotiating, and that's uh, over 200,000 workers. Uh, so we could see uh, some major issues out there uh, with people being off work. And if you're off work and you're uh, being paid on a strike fund, you're getting less money. And so your spending may go down. Now, the Fed would look past that initially to see uh, if, it, if these things get settled quickly. And if they do, it really isn't going to have much of an impact. But if those things drag on, then you could see uh, major problems. And not to mention that, uh, bad enough that yellow trucking might be down, but if UPS stops delivering packages, that slows the whole economy because so much of it is intermediate goods that gets then put into other goods. And so uh, you could have uh, a real roadblock. Uh, I guess we go back to the supply chain problems that we've been uh, worried about for years. Those come back and the economy takes a hit. Well, another thing may come back is food inflation after Russia broke a
2: grain export agreement, which is obviously already having an impact not so much here in the U.S., but in Africa, in the Middle East, in Europe, and, and that could really burgeon into something really awful.
7: Yeah, that's a lo- little bit longer term because analysts say we've uh, got good grain supplies. It's been It's going to be a good harvest year uh, in the Western Hemisphere, and so the grain's going to be out there, be a little more expensive because it has to travel longer distances. But next year, you run into a problem, and so the Fed can't uh, go to sleep on this and say, well, inflation is going to go away when this is lurking out there. They can't do anything about food inflation, but it does influence psychology. And if you're cutting back on spending because you're having to pay more for food, that's a problem. The other issue that comes out of the war is also uh, energy, energy prices. What are What's OPEC and OPEC Plus, which includes Russia, going to do? Are they going to keep cutting rates? So uh, I mean, keep uh, uh, raising prices. Cutting. I'm thinking Fed. Keep raising prices so they can make up for uh, some of the lost revenue they've gotten. uh, To come, more countries start trying to evade the embargoes on oil. Uh, Energy prices could be another wild card for the Fed out there. And
2: another uh, really bump on the horizon, but maybe be more impactful for the Fed's next meeting in September, but uh, the resumption of federal student loan payments.
7: That is going to be an interesting question because we... We have a lot of numbers, but we don't know exactly how this will play out. In uh, September, they start collecting interest again on the loans, and in October, people have to start paying. And so the question is, have people been spending all this extra money on other things, and that spending goes away, and the money goes straight back to uh, the student uh, loan servicers and sort of disappears from the overall economy? There are some surveys that show a lot of people continued to make their payments, even though they didn't have to. So if they did, then you won't see a huge. Uh, A a huge problem. But it is expected to hit uh, a significant number of people, especially at the lower levels of income, who spend pretty much everything they have. And so that could be another problem.
2: That was Bloomberg's Global Economics and Policy Editor, Michael McKee. And coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, Decision Day for the Bank of Japan, also about to hit us this week. I'm Tom Busby, and this is Bloomberg.
0: Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new monthly edition of the Capital Ideas podcast. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. Subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Invest 30 minutes today. American Funds Distributors, Inc. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. banking services provided by Green Dot Bank, member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time.
2: This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm Tom Busby in New York. As we've been reporting, investors are watching the coming week's Federal Reserve meeting. We're also watching events in Tokyo very closely. And for more, let's go to Hong Kong and Bloomberg Daybreak Asia host, Brian Curtis. Tom, we look forward to the upcoming meeting of the
3: Bank of Japan with more than an ounce of anticipation. Calls abound for change in the BOJ's ultra-loose monetary policy. However, Governor Kazuo Ueda said recently that the central bank was continuing with easing on the premise, the premise that Japan is still some distance from achieving its 2% inflation goal. Now, he said a change in that premise is needed in order to shift policy. The yen weakened as the market appeared to conclude that no change is in the offing. Yet, some strategists are saying that they won't rule out a change in yield curve control policy sometime soon. Well, joining us now for some insights on all of this is Kathleen Hayes, Bloomberg's Global Economics and Policy Editor. Kathleen, the BOJ has a tradition of of not liking to be pushed around uh, to Mm -hmm. a certain degree by the media or the investor community, Uh, so... It seems like people are expecting something does that maybe mean given that that we might see more
1: delay Well people have changed their minds it's interesting Brian if you look at the uh Bloomberg Eco Team survey that they did just in these past few days, you'll see that in they do an April survey, they do a July survey, uh, they do these surveys before the meetings. Anyway, before people were looking, 40% of them thought that there would be some kind of move at this July meeting. Uh, And now it's 82% who don't see a move at this meeting it's people are now looking to October, nothing in September, something in October. And if you add up all the people who see a chance of July and the people who see a chance of September and then October, you get over 50%. So that's where the market expectation has moved.
3: The BOJ is a funny institution. Uh, It's unlike the Fed in that it, it does like to surprise markets. Why is that?
1: Well, it's kind of old-fashioned, if you ask me. That's what Paul Volcker used to do in, back in the day, back when you had the worst yeah. you know, inflation ever in the U.S. He wanted to get more impact on the markets, and I expect that the BOJ has that same sense, that if, if you want markets to react, if you want expectations to change, when you surprise people, uh, you, have, you have a longer-lasting effect, potentially.
3: Yeah, and Alan Greenspan didn't exactly tip his hand much, did he?
1: Not like they knew nowadays.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So how likely is it then, do you think that we might see uh, perhaps something like yield curve control adjusted uh,
1: at the next meeting? Yeah. Uh, not too likely. And, and it, what I struck me, Ueda so far has become a very good communicator. He keeps saying that he just wants to be sure that inflation is stably and uh, sustainably at 2%. And He often refers to 2022 when he was back uh, on the board of the BOJ and he dissented against a a hike. They went ahead and hiked and it turned out was the wrong thing to do. Japan economy fell back. They had to cut rates. And I've been told there's a lot of BOJ staffers, you know, they've been there. Since then, and they don't want to make that mistake again. And as I recall recently, former Deputy Governor Makatabe told me, You know, the BOJ wants to be behind the curve. They don't want to get out front because they want <laughs> to make sure that they don't mess things up. And they feel they, for now, they can wait. The yen's well behaved. The bond market's better behaved. There's just no big pressure on them. And even though inflation is so far over target, uh, and even though they'll probably boost their inflation forecast at the next meeting uh, to just a 2%, 2.3%, perhaps is what the, our survey said, uh, they don't feel in a hurry to move.
3: It's an interesting environment. Policymakers um, clearly think that the current levels of inflation are not sticky. And we've seen a lot of sticky inflation everywhere around the world. Uh, but the policymakers in Japan think that they will recede. What are the main reasons that they think inflation will fall back?
1: Well, one of the things they're watching very closely is the global economy. And, uh, in fact, another thing uh, I was recently told we should be watching for is a change in the GDP outlook to less growth next year. And look what's happening in China, right? I mean, they're they're a big driver in the Asian economy overall, U.S. economy holding up pretty well. But if the Fed keeps hiking... What does that mean for demand for Japanese exports? I think that's a factor. The wage increases this past year were were pretty good. And uh, in terms of there's the summer bonuses, which would start going out now, which apparently are still expected to be pretty good. But there's just that chance that you know that that something will happen that it isn't that inflation they're going to have deflation it's just not that they're going to have inflation staying so far above uh two percent on the core right now i believe it's at like 3.2 3.3 percent year over there that takes out fresh food prices but they're they i think they still see not that they're so vulnerable but the global economy is vulnerable and that's something that to keep an eye on
3: so obviously there's a lot of debate about growth, global growth, U.S. growth. If we don't get a recession, if we actually have a little bit stronger growth than expected, I wonder whether or not that counters the trend of what the BOJ would be, uh, you know, that inflation would fall back below the target all the way to back below 2%, which is why they would want to keep the loose policy. Yeah. Uh, how does it look for growth in Japan at the moment?
1: Well, I think there's some there's some clouds over manufacturing. Uh, I think investments held up reasonably well, but that's something else they're looking at. Consumption's been holding up reasonably well. There's no big red flag, and again, it's it's it remains to be seen. And what if what if China does finally take some more steps? What if they bring back confidence in their domestic economy to get their in their internal demand growing again? There's a lot of ifs there, and what could happen. Just to speak about the Fed for a minute, um, we spoke in the last couple of days with Rob Kaplan, former Dallas Fed president, and his point is that what we're seeing in the US economy in this, all these Fed rate hikes and inflation uh, coming down, but not down enough potentially, all the fiscal stimulus. All the fiscal stimulus starting in, you know, 2021, uh, that's putting, it's it's still flooding through the economy. And that's one reason why services are strong and why we see services inflation. So that could be, yes, a a welcome sign uh, for the BOJ. uh,
3: It's really really interesting when you look at it in the U.S. and think of the long and variable lag of fiscal policy uh, Mm -hmm. matched up against the long and variable lag of Fed interest rate hikes.
1: Well, and then what you have to figure out, if then you, it isn't just the lag from the past. If you're still pouring money into the economy, if the federal government's doing that, out in your that lag's gonna get out even further, right? Mm. It's going to continue to continue to continue. Uh, but even so, people are figuring what? Two, maybe three hikes, I think people figure it'd be a bit much for the Fed at this point. Uh, and for getting back to the BOJ, they have also made it clear That if they do a tweak in yield curve control, they will still be easy on monetary policy because they will not anytime soon be actually taking that negative rate, the key rate at the short end, and pushing it up to zero or higher.
3: How closely aligned is the Kishida administration with the BOJ?
1: Seems, it seems that there is a, a pretty good alignment right now. And of course that's uh, the, the Kishida administration probably doesn't, isn't looking forward to seeing any kind of uh, reduction in monetary stimulus. Uh, number one, because they do want to keep the economy growing, but also because they don't want to see yields rising. They've got a big debt to finance. They're going to be doubling what their, their defense spending this year. Uh, they don't want to have to raise taxes. So the, uh, Right now, I don't think that's why. I don't really think there's any inch of the BOJ that's saying, oh, we have to keep rates low to help the, the government finance its debt. Yeah. At the same time, they probably realize that it's a, it's, a, it's a nice spot to be in. You don't need to raise rates. You don't need to get in the government's way. So everybody's, everybody's on the same page right now.
3: Kathleen, thanks so much for your insights. Really appreciate it. Kathleen Hayes, Bloomberg Global Economics and Policy Editor. I'm Brian Curtis. You can catch Doug Krisner and me every weekday for Bloomberg Daybreak Asia,
2: beginning at 6 a.m. in Hong Kong and 6 p.m. on Wall Street. Tom? Thank you, Brian. And coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, we go to the UK and what's happening behind the scenes with an eyebrow-raising story unfolding in the banking industry there right now. I'm Tom Busby, and this is Bloomberg.
0: Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new monthly edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes today. American Funds Distributors, Inc. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen.
6: Broadcasting live from the Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studio in New York, Bloomberg 1130, to Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991 to Boston, Bloomberg 1061, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, to London, DAB Digital Radio, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com.
2: This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. I'm Tom Busby in New York with your global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. NatWest will report second quarter earnings next week in the UK after two quarters in which the bank missed on the key metric of net interest income. But the bank and its CEO, Alison Rose, are also under scrutiny for a very different issue. The closure of the bank account of Brexit advocate Nigel Farage by Coots. That's a unit of NatWest. Let's head over to our London Bureau now and Bloomberg Daybreak anchor Caroline Hepker.
4: The former leader of the UK Independence and Brexit Party, Nigel Farage, has called for a parliamentary inquiry into why Coots closed his bank account last month. So the pro-Brexit politician, speaking to Bloomberg Radio, says that the internal documents from the bank, a unit of NatWest, show that his account was closed because of his views. Farage published a 40-page report from Coutts. It's not limited to Farage's financial position. It also includes analysis of his public comments and media coverage. And I'm sure you know, but this issue has created a media storm which has drawn in the Prime Minister. Joining me now in studios, Bloomberg's finance reporter, Will. Bill sure. Shaw, We've been tracking this story and we interviewed Nigel Farage together. How did, first of all, this route actually all start?
8: So a few weeks ago, Coots, which is a banker to the wealthy, including the royal family, closed down his bank account. Now, at the time, people familiar with that decision indicated that that was because he hadn't deposited enough money um, with the firm. Similar stories ran in the BBC and the Financial Times. Um, Nigel Farage, however, had put in a subject access request to were asking documents um, that would indicate why the decision was made. Now, these documents appear to suggest that they considered his political views and made an assessment that his values didn't match to Cootes' wider commitment to inclusion.
4: Well, you and I spoke to the politician and broadcaster, Nigel Farage. So I want us to listen to that extensive interview. Well,
6: it's pretty clear, isn't it, that when that decision was taken, it was because I do not fit with their agenda, I do not fit with their policies apparently of diversity and inclusion. I do not represent their values. I am a very, very bad person because I happen to hold views which are legal and are majority views in the country that the upper class, uh, upper middle class types that inhabit Coots don't share. So it's pretty clear. If you look at the seventeenth of November, it's pretty Nigel. clear why that decision was made.
4: Nigel, have they lied then?
6: They've lied about the uh, they've lied about the initial reason for closing the account. Yes. Um, I mean, what they would say in their defense is that since November 2022, there was a big drawdown on the account, a temporary drawdown on the account. But it's now back up to the levels that they themselves described as commercially viable. So, look, you know, they've been absolutely dishonest about this all the way through.
8: In, in this document, it says that at one point it says it's clear that you project xenophobic, chauvinistic and racist views, although you've done it yeah, within the law. And disgusting. there's also they also say there's a perception of you as a disingenuous grifter. Uh, do, you have any, my... do you have any plans to sue the bank or is it your view that anyone at um, NatWest or Coots ought to resign over this?
6: It is bile. It is poison. It is written with venom. It is prejudiced in a most extraordinary way that only the upper middle classes who live in central London postcodes could possibly do. Um, and I think this is why airing
8: it in public is causing them such a panic. Uh, look, should, should someone, think, do, you, do you think that someone ought to resign over it? And if so, who? I'll
6: tell, tell you what I think should happen. I think the bosses of the RBS group should appear before a parliamentary committee to explain why they now make political and moral judgments on customers of theirs who meet their financial requirements and who give opinions that are entirely within the law and are majority views in this country.
4: Uh, in terms of the timing then, uh, that was the other question I was going to ask you. Obviously, you were leader of UKIP between 2006-2009, Brexit Party leader 2010-2016. to 2016. Why do you think the bank made the decision now?
6: I think it's the whole RBS group. I think that uh, the boss of the group now, Alison Rose, has taken uh, coots and taken NatWest into territory that I think is highly political. I think there's been a shift in the way these banks view the world and view their customers. And that is my best guess as to the timing of it. There's nothing I've said or done that's any different to what I've said and done for the previous 20 years.
8: Bloomberg last year wrote about the performance of an investment advice service that you were promoting. Um, if people had followed that advice, they would have lost quite a bit of money. The performance was worse. Yeah, they were, they'd they- have
6: been in gold and in sterling terms, gold's been at all time highs. And if you want to talk to about anything else, you can do what the hell you like. I'm not interested. All right.
4: In terms of Alison Rose, you think that she has questions yeah. to answer personally for this situation?
6: I think she's going to be questioned by. I think mainstream media, as we speak, are asking those questions. You know, what have you done? What have you done to this banking group? What direction are you taking it in? Aren't you beginning to behave behave a bit more like a political organisation than a bank that is than a bank group that is forty percent owned by the taxpayer? So yeah, look. I just hope by coming out in public, I sponsor a very very big debate about what banks are for, and ultimately, ultimately, what I want is for everybody to have the right to a bank account, the right to their own business account. This used to exist in our country before the privatization of the post office. It still exists in in comparable Hmm. countries like France and Germany. And I think this is a very, very important and fundamental issue because as we move towards a more and more digitized society, whether we like it or not, without a bank account, you simply can't exist. I mean, you virtually become a non-person.
4: So that was the politician and broadcaster, Nigel Farage, Mm. talking about the contents of that report, why Coots made the decision. Now, in response to Farage's comments, a spokesperson for Coots has given us this statement. It's being read here in full by a Bloomberg journalist.
9: We recognise the substantial interest in this case. We cannot comment on the detail given our customer confidentiality obligations. However... It is not Coots's policy to close customer accounts solely on the basis of legally held political and personal views. Decisions to close an account are not taken lightly and involve a number of factors, including commercial viability, reputational considerations and legal and regulatory requirements. We recognise the critical importance of access to banking when it became clear that our client was unable to secure banking facilities elsewhere and, as he has confirmed publicly, he was offered alternative banking facilities with NatWest. That offer stands. We understand the public concern that the process for ending a customer relationship and how that is communicated are not sufficiently transparent. We welcome the anticipated HM Treasury recommendations in this area alongside the ask to prioritise the review of the regulatory rules related to politically exposed persons. We look forward to working with the government, the regulator and the wider industry to ensure that universal access to banking is maintained.
4: Okay, so that is the Coots response then uh, to Nigel Farage's comments there in full. Uh, Bloomberg's finance reporter, Will Shaw, is still with me. Um, to really go through this story, how significant an issue actually is this idea of closing bank accounts for customers?
8: I think it would be easy to say, oh, this is just Nigel Farage, this is just something that affects one person. He obviously has a very unique uh, political standing in uk life um despite his sort of class war rhetoric he's from a wealthy background he's a former trader um and until very recently he even had an account with coots however like there is concern that this might well set a wider precedent as you heard him warning there uh, there are lots of people that share nigel farage's views as as he would be he would be quick to point out and as the brexit vote demonstrated in 2016 so he would argue that if he can be targeted on, on his mm. political values, all kinds of people can be targeted in the same way.
4: So that was Will Shaw and I speaking to Nigel Farage. My thanks to Bloomberg finance reporter Will Shaw. I'm Caroline Hepker here in London. You can catch us every weekday morning for Bloomberg Daybreak Europe, beginning at 6am in London. That's 1am on Wall Street. Tom.
2: Thank you, Caroline. And coming up here on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, Hunter Biden and the challenges Democrats may face on that front. I'm Tom Busby and this is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm Tom Busby in New York. Hunter Biden facing a court date in the coming week. And for more, let's head to our Bloomberg 991 newsroom in Washington and Bloomberg Sound On co-host Kaylee Lines.
5: That's right, Tom. This coming Wednesday, July 26th, Hunter Biden is expected to formally plead guilty in a Delaware court to two misdemeanor tax charges and in theory, avoid prosecution on a separate gun related charge. The judge, Mary Ellen Noreka, a Trump appointee, still has to sign off on the plea deal that we first learned about last month, a deal that has drawn the ire of many Republicans. It's a political firestorm, to say the least. Joining me now to discuss this is Wendy Benjaminson, our Washington senior editor. So, Wendy, what exactly do we expect to go down in court this coming week?
10: Is this going to be pretty seamless? I I think that court appearance will be, yes, Kelly, um, you know, pretty straightforward, it's what's happening in the courtroom of the House of Representatives, <laughs> where it is far less seamless and on the 2024 campaign trail. But in Delaware, he's going to plead guilty to gun and tax charges. He already has made a deal with prosecutors, so there should be no surprises there whatsoever, except the spectacle of a son of the United States president, uh, president, excuse me, um, being charged with kind of low-level
5: crime. Well, speaking of spectacles, and Wendy, you just mentioned the House of Representatives. Just this past week, (laughs) the House Oversight Committee had a hearing with two IRS whistleblowers who talked about the investigation into Hunter Biden, and even members of not this committee showed up, including House Ways and Means Committee Chairman Jason Smith. Here's a taste of what he had to say about this.
6: The Department of Justice engaged in a campaign to delay, divulge, and deny that investigation they delayed investigators for years leading to the expiration of the statute of limitations for many of the crimes involved
5: so wendy it speaks to just how political this is and how conservatives see this as another example of a two-tier justice system where the president and his family are being treated differently than say the former president
10: well exactly kaylee and this is um you know, this sort of all goes to the uh, to the taste of what the campaign is going to be like through next year. The thing is that the House Republicans are sort of on a revenge tour um, after the Trump-Russia investigation, which consumed the first part of Trump's presidency um, while he was doing his own, you know, sort of unusual actions as president. And then this Trump-Russia investigation, which turned out to be really nothing, um you know, is what Republicans are mad at and what is driving them to pretty much do the same thing with Hunter Biden. There is a circumstantial case for what the House Ways and Means chairman there said. The Justice Department did let the statute of limitations expire. What we don't have is motive. What we don't have is whether this is just bureaucracy speed, you know, the slowness of bureaucracy, whether it was incompetence or whether, as Republicans seem to firmly believe, this was a political operation.
5: And given that we're talking about the president's son, it's worth pointing out, Wendy, that he hasn't had that much to say on this, the president himself, just that he loves his son, that kind of thing. Very little comment. How big of a headache is this for him?
10: It's a pretty big headache because every time, you know, he... I, I'm not sure. It's a pretty big headache because every time he wants to talk about, you know, Bidenomics, his coined phrase for, you know, his economic policies, he wants to talk about that. He wants to talk about his record. And the Republicans respond with Biden crime family.
5: Definitely something that is going to be difficult for President Biden to escape, but also biden seeking re-election in 2024 i would imagine if this narrative is going to feature pretty prominently in campaigns against him wendy benjaminson washington senior editor thank you so much and tom we'll send it back to you
2: thank you kaylee that was bloomberg sound on co-host kaylee lines reporting from our bloomberg 99.1 newsroom in washington and you can hear sound on weekdays 1 to 3 p.m on bloomberg radio And that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. Join us again Monday morning at 5 a.m. Wall Street time for the latest on markets overseas and the news you need to start your day. I'm Tom Busby. Stay with us. Top stories and global business headlines are coming up right now.
1: The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg.